I want to invite you to turn to the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. We're in chapter 8. It's been four years ago now since I experienced the pleasure and the privilege of visiting the Middle Eastern city of Dubai in uh, the United Arab Emirates. Dubai is a spectacular, ultra-modern city designed, built as a destination playground on the Persian Gulf coast of the Arabian Peninsula. It's for the, the very, the, the world's richest and famous. That's why I was there, of course. Uh, and uh, one of the distinct landmarks of the city of Dubai is a skyscraper known as the Burj Khalifa. It was made famous in a Mission Impossible movie with Tom Cruise. The, the Burj Khalifa is, I guess, now the second tallest man-made structure in the world, standing over 2,700 feet high. That's just over a half a mile. <laughs> a building over a half a mile. And um, yeah, I've been to the top of the IDS Tower in Minneapolis. I've been to the top of the Sears Tower in Chicago. I've been to the top of the Rock, you know, the Rockefeller Center in New York City. And I have never been in a building where the top floors are actually piercing through and above the clouds. Uh, so to stand below and look up or to, you know, to be on top looking down, you, you just can't help wondering how does such a structure remain upright? What kind of foundation is required to keep this tower from falling? And the actual foundation of the Burj Khalifa includes 180. And 92 separate piles. You know those cylindrical things <laughs> that they drive into the ground. Each one is five feet in diameter. Each one is, is 138 feet long. And they are all driven to a depth of 164 feet. That, that is 12 stories underground. 192 of them. That is the foundation necessary to keep the massive Burj Khalifa reaching upward over a half mile from toppling. The promise of Romans chapter 8 verse 28 makes me think of the Burj Khalifa. It is extraordinary. It is massive. It holds more weight and sustains more hope than perhaps any other promise God has made. You, you try to think now, so like how high, if we were to measure it, how high is this promise? And Romans 8.28 says that God is so supremely in charge of the world that all of the things that happen to a Christian all of the things that happen to a Christian are ordered in such a way that they serve our good. All things of every kind. And what really helps me to, to kind of measure the height of Romans 8.28 is Romans 8.35. 
If you're a Christian and you experience trouble of any kind, God makes that trouble work for your good. If you're a Christian and you're experiencing distressing things, upsetting things of any kind, God makes them work for your good. Persecution, if you're a Christian, you're being marginalized, you're being mocked, being threatened, God makes that work for your good. Natural disasters, you know, like hurricanes and earthquakes and floods and tornadoes and drought or viruses, God makes them work for your good. How about what Romans 8.35 describes as nakedness? I believe this is a reference to humiliation. So, so if you're a Christian and you experience humiliation, like failure or shame or undeserved slander or ungrounded, unfounded allegations or, or public embarrassment of any kind, anything that would leave you helplessly exposed, vulnerable, God makes all that work for your good. And then there's peril, like impending danger. It's out there, about ready to strike. So, so think, think the possibility of runaway inflation, or the possibility of being unemployed, or the possibility of some major economic collapse, or the possibility of catching some COVID variant, or whatever potential loss of freedoms we once enjoyed. God even makes the possibility of all that work for our good. And then finally, verse 35 refers to the sword. And this is certainly the most extreme challenge of them all. It, it, it would have to include things like casualties of war, sons and daughters that come home in a body bag. It would include murder. It would include manslaughter. It would include holocausts, genocide, infanticide. Listen, if you're a Christian... God makes even the worst things imaginable work for your good. Of all God's promises, can you think of one that reaches higher than Romans 8.28? And how does such a towering promise stand? How do we know it's not going to just crumble, give way? And loved ones, according to Romans 8, listen, our hope is not 
that Christians will escape the worst things. Our hope is that God will cause all things of every kind to work together for our good. That is, they will work together for the fulfillment of the purpose of God in and through our lives. Now today, I want to draw your attention to the reasons that Paul gives for our assurance that the promise of Romans 8.28 will in fact hold. If Romans 8.28 were like a skyscraper reaching to the heavens, well then Romans 8.29 and 30 is the foundation. These are the piles. These verses work like piles driven deep below the surface that make the promise of Romans 8.28 so unshakable and sure. So I want to invite you if you're will, uh, able, and uh, as an expression of your regard and respect for God's Word, I want to invite you to stand and please follow along. I, I'm going to read Romans chapter 8, verses 29, thir- 28, 29, and 30. And um, we, we read God's Word like we read no other. Paul writes, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is God's holy and awesome word. Let's pray. It's like we stand before this massive structure looking up, kind of lose the top somewhere up there in the clouds because it's so high. Pray, Lord, that um, we wouldn't just stand here in wonder and astonishment, but that we would be a people who are grounded firmly, unshakably, most certainly. And we pray that you would accomplish your purpose. That is to make us more and more and more and more like your Son, our Lord Jesus, the Christ. So that we would think like Jesus, we We'd act like Jesus. We'd have the character of Jesus. We'd be like Jesus. We'd have the mindset of Jesus and the priorities of Jesus. And that together, together as a people, we would, as one body, one household, be a display of the glories of Jesus until Every knee bows and 
every language confesses and proclaims. And every nation, tribe, people group praises you, Lord Jesus, for your glorious saving work. We ask this in your name. Amen. Maybe seated. Have you ever made a promise that was bigger than your ability to keep it? If I said to my wife, honey, this is the year. This is the year I'm taking you to Italy. I promise. And I know how she would respond. She'd say, don't you make a promise that you can't keep. (laughs) When God makes a promise, a promise as big and tall and massive as Romans 8.28, how can we be sure that he's going to keep it? When God makes a promise as towering as Romans 8.28, as an infinitely skilled structural engineer, God also grounds that promise with assurances so deep we can stand at the very top and we can know with conviction and certainty that it's going to be fulfilled. And Paul communicates the certainty of our assurance of the fulfillment of Acts 8.28 in Romans, sorry, the the fulfillment of Romans 8.28 in Romans 8.29 and 30. So how can we know? How can we be so certain that God will cause all things, including the most catastrophic things, to work together for good? Verse 29, for, or because, now here's the reason, because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So the reason that Christians, that is people who love God, people who have been called according to God's purpose, can have unwavering hope that God will keep the promise of Romans 8.28 is because those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that his son might be the firstborn among many brothers. Or to say it another way, it is God's unbreakable foreknowing and predestining that guarantee our glory and our everlasting joy. That's the foundation. That's the foundation that holds up the promise of Romans 8.28. God's unbreakable foreknowing and his unbreakable predestining, these things guarantee our glory and our everlasting joy. The Burj Khalifa in Dubai, it has 192 piles supporting its foundation. Romans 8.28 has supporting structures beneath it, driven deep beneath it, that are meant to engender certainty and confidence that God's promise in Romans 8.28 will never fail. And these piles are built on God's foreknowing, God's predestining, and God's ultimate purpose. So we'll look at these one at a time. 
These are the foundation pieces. And that first one is God's foreknowing. What does that mean? (laughs) Some define this word in the sense of simply or merely knowing something beforehand. Foreknowing means knowing something in advance of it taking place. Therefore, some would say that God's foreknowledge means that he he foresees who is going to believe, and this knowing beforehand who is going to believe is then the basis for his predestination. In other words, those whom God has predestined to save, to be saved, are, are those whom God knew ahead of time already that would turn to Him and trust to Him. Say it another way. God foresees, He knows in advance who it is who's going to believe in Him, and these are the ones He predestines to be like Jesus. Now, this is a, a very common understanding, but it's problematic. It's problematic in that not only does it violate the most basic rules for defining defining words in a biblical text, it also assumes two things that are just simply, how else do I say it? They're just not true. If, If God's foreknowing is merely nothing more than his seeing in advance those who will turn and trust in him, it assumes that the turning and the trusting that God foresees is ultimately and decisively our work, not his work. Foreknowing, according to this interpretation, is based on the assumption that God is not the one who causes faith or brings into being our faith. God only foresees our faith. He anticipates it, a faith that we cause. And that's a problem because that's not what Scripture says. For example, in Philippians 1.29, Paul says, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, You should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. So believing is something that is granted. The ultimate cause of believing, it's not us. Our believing is a gift. It's been given. It's been granted to us by God. More familiar text would be Ephesians 2. 2 verse 8 where Paul says by grace you've been saved through faith and this what's what this what's this well the this is the faith that saves by grace you've been saved through faith and this saving faith is not your own doing it's a gift of God Or when Jesus commends Peter for seeing and trusting him as the Christ. What does Jesus say? Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, 
but my Father who is in heaven. So this doesn't have a human source to it. It has a divine source to it. You're believing, you're seeing, you're trusting. It's from God the Father. He's the cause, ultimately. So our faith is not something that God just merely foresees. Our faith is something that God gives. Which is confirmed in Romans 8, 28 through 30. And we know that all things work together for good, verse 29, because, for, because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So, all, everyone who is called is also justified. God calls, you're justified. But in order to be justified, what has to happen? We have to believe. Romans 5.1 says we've been justified by faith. So, in Romans 8 verse 30, Paul is saying all of those who are called... Believe and are thus justified. So how can he say that? How can Paul say that if our believing depends ultimately and decisively on us? How can Paul say that all who are called believe unless that calling, the calling he is referring to in verse 28, is the powerful work of God that brings into being what he's commanding. So like whenever we proclaim Christ and we urge people, turn and trust Jesus. Come to him. Come to him. That's a general call, right? Many, many hear this. In fact, it goes out everywhere. Everybody can hear that call. It's like my neighbor, when the whole neighborhood hears him yelling at his dog, Hey, Pessy! Pessy! And there's Pessy. He's in my garage. He's sniffing my leg. And Pessy might go, might respond and run, but, but maybe not. In fact, most of the time he doesn't. He stays there sniffing my leg, playing in the garage. My neighbor's yelling all afternoon. What Paul is referring to is call is not that. <laughs> it's not like, come, Pessy, and maybe he comes, maybe he doesn't. What Paul is describing is what we understand to be God's effectual call. It's the call that causes and brings about its intended effect. It's the, it's the same kind of call that summoned Lazarus, who is dead in this tomb. And Jesus cried, come forth, Lazarus. And that call created the very thing that it commanded. A dead man lives and walks out. And according to Romans chapter 8, verse 29, everyone who is called like that, called according to God's purpose, called effectually, is also justified. 
And that's why we say that believing for justification is just, it's not something that we do on our own. God enables it. God empowers it. God makes it happen. Now, of course, we, <laughs> there is a sense in which believing is something that we do, but the doing of it is a gift from God. Like, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. We do that. How? For it is God who is at work within us to will, to want to, to desire, to act according to his good purpose. God is the ultimate one. So we don't earn it. We don't take credit for it. We, we are saved by God's sovereign grace from beginning to end. And that's why it is wrong to assume that when Romans 8.29 says God foreknew some, that it means he simply saw in advance that, that they would believe in him by their own power. It's, it's, it just cannot be. God's the one who gave that power. God's the one who brought into being that life, that faith. Now, why is that such a big deal? <laughs> it is a big deal because something much more is going on here in this text than merely God seeing beforehand something that we would do. If all if that's all God's foreknowing meant, it would leave Romans 8.28 teetering on terribly flimsy foundation. I mean, who would trust that promise that all things work together for their good? all things if it was all based on us ultimately I think you know the answer to that there's another reason that God's foreknowing cannot mean that God merely saw our believing in advance throughout scripture knowing this whole matter of knowing it's synonymous with loving the Lord knows the way of the righteous. It's more than just he's, you know, cognitively aware. He loves it. He loves the way of the righteous. God says to Israel, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. It's not like, okay, God, God sees all the nations and I know, I know this nation too. No, he knows them all, of course, but he knows this nation in a particular way. A particular way. Jesus says to some, depart from me, I never knew you. Yes, he did. He knew them this way, but he, there's another way of knowing. They're not his people. They're not his. So, for knowing is synonymous with for loving. And that's what God does. He knows in advance. He loves in advance. He chooses in advance. He calls. He predestines. 
Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And all whom he called, he also justified. And all who he justified, he also glorified. God is the ultimate and decisive actor in our salvation. In Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. He chose us in Him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. He he knew us, chose us, decided on us before Genesis 1-1. In order that we would be Holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. So friends, listen. The the reason that Christians can be absolutely sure that God will make all things work together for their good is that God foreknows His people. God distinguishes His people. He chooses His people. He calls into existence their faith and makes them His own and He cares for them and has done so before the foundation of the world in order that we might be conformed to the image of Jesus. God did not leave that up to us. He didn't merely foresee it. He made it. Nor will He then leave to whatever those all things that Christians experience. Those worst things that you experience. That is not being left up to the way the wind blows. And that directly relates then to a second pile driven deep under the promise of Romans 8.28. Namely, God's predestining. Now, to to predestine, it's to destine something ahead of time. Um, It means to decide or ordain in advance what destiny one will have. So verse 29 says, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. God ordained ahead of time, he destined ahead of time the ones whom he foreknew, called according to his purpose, he destined that they would be like Jesus. How does God's predestining (laughs) contribute to assurance that the promise of Romans 8.28 is not going to fail? I think of it like this. It's because those who love God and are called according to God's purpose are destined by God to be like Jesus. 
And having chosen you for his own, and having set his love on you, and having cared for you before you even existed, God decided what you would become. Namely, conformed to the glorious, holy, blameless image of His Son. And because God decided that before you were born, you can be sure that whatever happens to you is going to accomplish that that purpose. There's no way it's going to fail. The reason all things work together for your good, they must work together for your good, even the worst things, is because you were chosen and loved before you existed. And the way God's choice and love expresses itself is in ordaining or destining for you an unspeakably glorious and eternally joyful future. And that that future is glorious and will be eternally joyful because it means forever becoming more and more and more and more and more like Jesus. He's infinite. So, you know, like, we're just getting started. 10,000 more years will go by and we'll just have become, begun Becoming more like Jesus. And so if and when the all things of Romans 8.28 for you include, they may include tribulations, they may include distress, they may include being marginalized for your faith, may include, you know, the weather wiping out your profit margin. Or it may include somebody tweeting some misrepresentation of your message. Or it may include staring down the barrel of unemployment. Or whatever it might be. And you say, why? why? Why are these things happening? What is God up to? And the answer? It's so that you, Christian, will be conformed to the image of His Son. So that you, Christian, will become more and more and more like Jesus in your doing, in your thinking, in your feeling. And you say, yeah, but how how can I be sure that, that, that that's what this is really all about? How can I be sure that this is something that's like good eternally? And the answer is, well, this is the purpose for which God foreknew you. This is the purpose for which he called you, called life and faith into you. This is the purpose for which God destined you before you were born. A few months ago, I I shared with our missional community, I guess it was probably the fourth or fifth time I've, I've done this, um, shared my story. You know, we do this, we share our story with Jesus as the hero. And, uh, you know, my story is like 
your stories. Story of transformation, self-righteous, self-centered, good boy, trusts Jesus, experiences a little success in the eyes of the world, crashes and burns, wanders in his own little personal wilderness for, I don't know, 15 years or so. And in the process, becomes a little less (laughs) self-righteous, a little less self-reliant, a little less self-absorbed, a little less self-serving. And overall, a bit more like Jesus. You know, when, I, when I bring to mind, you know, the, the lowest points of my story, ah, comes back to me so clearly how painful it was. You know, how, how the Lord used tribulations and distress. Oh, and how he used nakedness in the sense of being so utterly, completely, vulnerably exposed with all of my flaws and failings. And how he used times when I felt so utterly hidden. And God made, that the, the wonder of it all is that God made them all work in such a way as to shape me as a more dependent man. God used the hardest things to teach me that the that the story that he had written for me before any one of my days had come to be is not ultimately about me or my name or my achievements or how good I feel about myself. It was in those lowest places that I began to learn to see that my weaknesses and my limitations were the very occasions for God to display his strength and his capacity and his sufficiency. My darkest years were where God taught me That the crucibles of things like marriage and parenting and pastoring and leadership and sufferings and losses and endings of every kind are all God-designed, God-ordained, God-destined servants to bring me into deep personal engagement with my inner being so that the gospel might be applied to those broken places in my soul and produce glory, the glory of Jesus and deeper joy and gratitude and love for Jesus. Look again at Romans 8.29. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he, that is his Son, might be the firstborn among many brothers. So, so there is actually another very massive pile driven down to serve our assurance that God will keep his promises to make, to make, keep this promise to make all things work for our good. And that is the certainty of God's ultimate purpose. God makes all things work together so that every individual Christian might be more and more like Jesus. But here's the thing. God makes all things work together so that all of us individual Christians might 
together as a spiritual community. In spiritual community might become more and more and more like Jesus. We, when we suffer together, when we're transparent and vulnerable about how, how we suffer together as a spiritual family, like brothers and sisters, whether those sufferings happen to be like relational challenges or circumstantial challenges or social cultural challenges, it's so that we together as a local church will look and think and act and feel more and more and more like Jesus. But just when you think that's, that's like the ultimate thing, it's not the ultimate thing. <laughs> God's ultimate purpose is in making us together to be a corporate display of Jesus' glory is so that Jesus will be praised and exalted as the firstborn over all the brothers and sisters in all the world, all those who will come to him and trust in him and turn to him. He will be exalted and praised as king over all kings and lord over all lords, the firstborn over all nations, tribes, languages, people groups. To be the firstborn, that's a special thing. Being first in birth order typically comes with higher expectations, greater responsibilities and preeminence. Those of you who are firstborn know how messed up that all can become, not for Jesus being messed up, but as our older brother, the firstborn among us all, he is special. This is how special he is. Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Loved, loved ones, that purpose will never fail. God will fill this earth with the knowledge of and the praise of His Son as the waters cover the sea. And so we we know that God makes all things work together for good, for Christians, because God's purpose is that we might all become more and more like our older brother. And God has foreknown us and has predestined us to be conformed to, the, to His image. And that's because God's ultimate purpose is that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus, the firstborn, will be praised as Savior and God for the sake of our joy and our soul satisfaction, and His praise forever and ever. Let's pray. I'm mindful just now, Lord, that even, even ideas like 
foreknowing and predestining. They just, they're just foreign to our mindset. They're foreign to the notion, the notions that shape us in the culture in which we live. They're difficult. And I would pray that as part of your work of conforming us to your Son, help us to think about these things the way you, Lord Jesus, think about these things. Help us to have your mindset. Move us along that process of becoming more and more and more like you in our, our mindset, in our priorities, in our perspective of the glory, the glories of God the Father, the glories of Calvary, the glories of justification, the glories of being counted as if we'd never sinned and counted as if we had always obeyed. Shape us. Shape us mentally. Shape us in our affections. Shape us in our actions so that you would get glory. And, and Lord, do it. Do it among us together. That's what you mean to do, is to do it among us together. So strengthen our experience of union, not just with Christ, but with one another through the power of this gospel. This gospel which is now made visible in what we're about to do. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.